you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again this morning to John chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, we go through books of the Bible, and weeks ago we began a study of John's Gospel. And so I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. If you do have a Bible, this will be a good week. It's always a good week to keep your Bible open, to look back to things I'm referring to. This is a week particularly where we will be looking back. Uh, You'll see the passage go up on the screen, but it will disappear after I've read it. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to keep it out before you. If you know me, and I know many of you do, you know that I'm a guy who does not like conflict. I grieve when people misunderstand me. I ache when people are upset with me. And I suppose that describes all of us to some degree or another, right? None of us likes conflict, although I know that some of you are more or less affected by it than I am. I bring this up because as we jump back into John's account of the life of Jesus, If you were here last week, we have verse 18 kind of ringing in our ears from last week. Let me remind you of it. You can look at it there if you're in John chapter 5. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. That is Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, remember he healed a man on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There's no doubt that Jesus has sufficiently rocked the boat. He's torn up the temple, he's healed a man on the Sabbath, and he has essentially called himself God. And all of this has incensed the religious leaders of the day. It has incensed the Pharisees. But rather than shrink away, Jesus has chosen, in this passage that I'm about to read to you, Jesus has chosen to press in this point even further. And he's not speaking to the choir. He's speaking directly to those who are opposed to him, those who have persecuted him. And he's doing this because he must do this. Because it's the truth. He is equal with the Father. He is equal with God. I suppose that's the only thing that will make me bring about conflict as well, is standing firm in the truth. There's no flying under the radar now for Jesus. He's going toe-to-toe with those who oppose Him. And so this week, we begin in John chapter 5, What is going to be a two-week examination into this monologue of Jesus. This is basically a speech that Jesus gives that takes up the entire rest of the chapter through the end of chapter 5, and it's the first significant one in the gospel. We're going to chop it up into two pieces, look at the first half today, look at the second half next week. So, with that introduction, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 5, starting at verse 19 reading through verse 29. John chapter 5, 19 through 29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the Word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. Speaking of knowing me, Many of you have met my father, uh, my earthly father. He's been here on a couple different occasions. And for those of you who haven't, maybe for those of you who have seen him, have met him, but don't know him that well, I declare this to you. I am my father's son. I am my father's son. I have my dad's height, although much to his disappointment, I'm a little bit taller I have my dad's big ears. I had my dad's struggle with acne during my teenage years. And then there is my calling, what I'm doing here this morning. If you were to ask a 17-year-old Nate, if he was going to follow in the footsteps of his preacher father, I would have looked at you like you were from another planet. I was insecure. I was immature, and I was terrified of public speaking. But here I am. I'm proud to say that I am like my father. I'm proud to say that I work like my father. This is a passage where Jesus, too, is proud to associate himself with his father. That what he brings up here in his relationship with God the Father, his heavenly Father, is, is way deeper than anything that you and I experience in relationship to our parents. See, John records these words of Jesus in John chapter 5 to make clear his claims. Jesus' claims while he was here on earth. Make no mistake, this passage I just read to you is rich theology. It is robust Christology. It is a profound Trinitarianism. J.C. Ryle, the 19th 
century Anglican Bishop of Liverpool said this, wrote this, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. It seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. Well, we're going to plumb those depths for a few minutes this morning. Hopefully, we're not going to drown in the process. We're not going to cover these themes in great depth. These actually are themes that Jesus will return to later in his life, that John will record later in Jesus' life. But this passage, as I've said multiple times, I reminded you of it last week, John's gospel is more a theological reflection. And this is a discourse that is a theological reflection on the person of Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, I'm not a theologian. I'm not into reading theology. Everyone is a theologian. And this is not dry theology. This is the person of Jesus. He's saying who He is. This is your Savior. This is your friend. This is your God. And I want you to remember that Jesus is standing in front of a group of opponents when He says these things. He's blowing their minds And in turn, they are going to blow their tops and and they're going to come after him with greater vigor. And that's also what John wants us to see. For those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus this morning, I want to call you to stand in wonder, to stand in awe. The majesty and the glory of Jesus. And for those of you who may not know Jesus here this morning, you're listening online, I pray that you would see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. So I thought a lot about how to frame this passage. You know I'm an organized thinker. I've got to have some organization when we come at these passages. And so I'm going to frame this passage around time. Around time. God is not bound by time, right? God is above time. God created time. And so these truths, they overlap. They're not perfectly categorized in regards to time. And yet we are bound to time. And so I think it's helpful for us to think of these things in regards to time. So three truths, past, present, and future. Three truths that this passage teaches us and reminds us of. And the first one is this. Jesus has forever been one with God the Father. Jesus has forever been one with God the Father. You see, as the Word of God this morning helps us look into the past, both to the time before we were and the time before time, we learn that Jesus always was. Now John's already primed this pump in John chapter 1, right? In his prologue. But here he reminds us that it's not just that he has existed, but that he has existed in equality, in oneness with God the Father. 
with the creator of all of us, the creator of all that is. Now, the Jews had long confessed and still do confess to this day, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a central tenet of their faith that established that there was one God, not many gods, but there was one God, and that one God was Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Now, Jesus doesn't contradict that statement, but he does press into it here, and he speaks of how his existence is part of that reality. He will say this explicitly in John chapter 10. We'll get to it weeks to come, maybe months to come. But he says this in John chapter 10 when Jesus will declare, I and the Father are one. But here he essentially illustrates this declaration as he unpacks his relationship with his Father. Let's walk through the phrases real quick. Verse 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. The Son does nothing independent. Jesus does nothing on His own initiative. In our vernacular, Jesus and the Father are in step. They are joined at the hip. Verse 19, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father has entrusted all of His divine prerogatives to the Son, and the Son joyfully walks in the will of God and never contradicts Him. Verse 20, he shows him all that he himself is doing. The father shares with the son all his plans, all his purposes. And then verse 20, for the father loves the son. The father does all of this because of his love for his son. This is a relationship, father, son, and We could add the Holy Spirit, the triune God that we worship this morning. This is a relationship with no conflict. There's no rebellious son. There's no absentee father. It is love that is at the ground of their relationship. And it's love, it's their love, that is the reason for our existence. Before creation, before anything, the father was loving the son. The Father is lover. The Son is the Beloved. Theologian Michael Reeves writes this, How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving one another? That throws out every other God of every other religion. Only the triune God can be loving. Because the Father has eternally been loving the Son. And it's because of this outward-facing, outward-flowing love that we, humanity, were created to enjoy it, to experience it, to be a part of it. And so now you and I, as we are united to Jesus, to the Son, now we have His status. Now we are the beloved. How crazy is that? Perfect communication, perfect love, one perfect 
being. Which is why Jesus says in verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Jesus and the Father are forever one. Church, this matters. These claims of Jesus matter. Back in the 4th century, there was a church leader named Arius who wanted to argue that Jesus was begotten. And so if He was begotten, He must have had a beginning. Therefore, He must have been created rather than co-eternal with the Father. And this created a great controversy in the early church, a controversy that was settled by the Nicene Creed which says in part this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. This matters. It matters for our salvation because only the God-man Jesus could atone for our sins. No mere man could do that. Yes, Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus is equal with the Father. And yet, as one theologian wrote, intrinsic equality becomes voluntary poverty and subordination. Because Jesus is perfectly one with the Father, there is no rivalry. Rather, He seeks to please the Father. He seeks to obey the Father. Ultimately, to reveal the Father to us. Their being is one. Therefore, their purpose and mission is one. I'm trying not to lose you here. But the bottom line is this. We cannot know God apart from Jesus. That's what He's saying. It's as simple as that. In our world of my truth, your truth, this is the truth. And Jesus will be way more explicit as we get later in the book of John, as he gets further in his ministry. But he's essentially laying that out here now. Christianity, following Jesus, is not just some religious system to follow. It is reality. It is the truth. It is acknowledgement of the identity of Jesus in relationship to God and therefore honoring the Son. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Jesus is one with God the Father. That's the first statement from eternity past. So let's move into the present. Second truth. Jesus is the life giver. Jesus is the life giver. Jesus here taps into something that makes the Pharisees' blood boil. But it makes our hearts sing. True life. Eternal life. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life To whom he will. Now, for the Jews that Jesus is speaking to here, it was already firmly established in the Old Testament that God alone, that Yahweh alone, was the giver of life. Deuteronomy 32 39. 
I, even I, am he, the Lord says. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make live. 1 Samuel 2, Hannah prays this, The Lord, Yahweh, kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And so when Jesus claims that he is the life giver, he is claiming deity. He is claiming that he is God. And it's not just that the Son is a channel for this life-giving power. It's not just that he has the ability to create this kind of power. It's that he is in himself this power. He is life. Because Jesus never came to life. He never was created. He embodies life. He emanates life. John's already confessed this in the prologue. In chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Speaking of light, it's why at the end of all time, there will be no need for the sun, because God will be there, and he is the light. Now, Jesus certainly emanated life at creation as he spoke this world into being. He will resurrect and bring life. The end of all things, we'll get to that in a moment. But presently, what's Jesus presently doing? He is giving life. Resurrection life. You and I, brothers and sisters, all of us in this room, are recipients of his resurrection Life. Notice the present tense in verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's a present reality already. And he tells us here who he gives this life to. Verse 21, to whom he will. That's who he gives it to. According to his sovereign pleasure. Not because you were lovely or lovable, but simply because he's loved you. And then verse 24, he also gives this to those who hear the word and believe. Believe and you will be saved. Now the works that come up in verse 29, you may have heard me read that and got a little bit of a heartburn there. The works that come up in verse 29 aren't the works that earn. They're works that prove, that reveal that one has believed. This is the free offer of the Gospel that Jesus has already spoken of in John 3.16, a passage we already looked at. Honor the Son by believing who He is, and you will receive life. His life. His life now, and His life into eternity. And this life-giving nature of Jesus is vital to our lives. Vital to our salvation, of course. Vital to our eternal existence, of course. But it's vital today. Jesus will later in John's Gospel, in John 15, He'll speak of this metaphor of vine and branches. We'll unpack it later. 
But let me just read verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Praise Jesus for the life that he brings today. And the life that he will bring in the future. And that's where we close this morning briefly. To the third reality, Jesus will be the judge to come. Jesus will be the judge to come. Of all the things that Jesus says in this monologue before his opponents, this is maybe the one that topped them all, that irked the religious leaders the most. Because Jesus here speaks of the final phase of his mission. And as he does, he intentionally picks up a title which for the Jew was reserved for the one spoken of in Daniel 7. Let me read part of Daniel 7, starting at verse 13. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not pass be destroyed. Jesus has come to a world that was already condemned. But He came to give life. To offer His life. And He promises that He will return to make all things right. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Folks, this is the end of the story. This is what is coming. The end of the book that you have in your laps. The end of the world as we know it. Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them and I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Jesus will be the judge to come. And the question is, are we ready? Are we ready for that day? This is who I am, Jesus says. This is who I am. I am forever one with the Father. I am the one who gives life to all who believe. And I am the one returning with the authority entrusted to me to judge the world. And so what are you and I called to? Well, we're called to a life of honor. Acknowledging the Son and who He is. We're called to a life of union, of staying connected as best we can to that life-giving vine that is Jesus. 
And we're called to a life of expectant waiting, knowing that one day we will give an answer. We will stand before the judge of heaven and earth. John says these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of our Savior. These words are deep. We can hardly scratch the surface of the mystery that is the Trinity, of the profoundness that is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I pray, Holy Spirit, that through this brief meditation on the glory of who the Savior is, that you would do your work in us. Father, perhaps there are some who are not ready. If Jesus were to return this afternoon, they would be caught flat-footed, not knowing what side they're on. Of Holy Spirit, may you do your work, drawing them to yourself, showing them the glory and the sufficiency of your Son. And for those of us who are ready for all things to be made right, are ready for you to come back, Lord Jesus, we ask for grace, we ask for strength, because we are a weak and distracted people. We try to bear fruit apart from the vine. We seek first the things of this earth rather than seeking first the kingdom of heaven. We at times live lives of anxiety and fear rather than joy and peace. And so I pray that you would take your word, Holy Spirit, that you would use it in the lives of your people however you see fit, that it might not return to you void, but accomplish all you intend for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.